0: This is Global Humanist Shop Talk. I'm M.L. Clark. In episode four, I talked about an idea that had excited me when I first heard about it and filled me with outsized hope that a better world was possible. I was caught up in the promise of Muhammad Yunus's vision of social business enterprise and microloans as a way of uplifting the world's most impoverished right up until I learned that all Eunice's grand plans had been significantly undermined by the machine of modern financial industry and the inevitable greed of most actors in it. I mentioned then though that I appreciated having gone through this huge shift in perspective because it's deepened my empathy for others carried away by the promise of a new technology and especially a new fintech or financial technology to perhaps transform the world And emancipate the world's most impoverished citizens. And so yes, in 2022 especially, we saw a series of impressive collapses of various facets of the cryptocurrency industry. Cryptocurrency exchanges like FTX filed for bankruptcy under the weight of their Ponzi-esque enterprises finally coming to light through a thorough accounting of their books, and the careless confidence games on which the whole notion of their market value had relied. I even have a crypto bro in the family, so I know firsthand how confident many individuals have been and continue to be in their ability to make a fortune quickly with crypto, and how much many ached to be proven smarter than the pack by getting in on this business or the related nonsense of the NFT market while the getting in was still good. I understand why many other people were over the moon to see exchange rates collapse for a number of cryptocurrencies last year, and why many even got a kind of sordid delight out of watching people double down when the market was low, hoping for a rebound that never occurred. The stock market has always had its obnoxious stereotypical actors, and there has always been a cultural pushback on their performance of devil-may-care superiority to the rest of us. Sam Bankman-Fried in particular was an interesting case though, because while he was on top of the crypto world, he was also waxing poetic about philanthropy, about claiming that crypto wasn't just the smart win for its own sake, but also the way that one could amass enough wealth quickly enough to make a real difference in the world, to invest in real change, It wasn't that he was out to get rich for himself, according to this spiel. He just knew that getting rich as quickly as he could would be the best way for him to contribute to the world later on. To this end, he leveraged his rather unprofessional behaviors as just part of what it meant to be an unassuming billionaire whose main goal was giving back through grand visions of investment in a better future under his sense of what that future would look like. Of course, the reality could not have been further from this outward spectacle. Bankman-Fried owned excessive properties, invested in politicians across the political spectrum to leverage power, and funded philanthropic projects, quote unquote, with a futurist bent that strongly deflected from serving the needs of the world today, and generally served to give his associates comfortable positions in life, dreaming of the world ahead. And yet, Bankman Freed was also speaking to a slice of the crypto world that, like me with microfinancing, genuinely believed, or maybe even still believes, that crypto is the path to change. Which is why today, as I invite us to reflect on crypto, the aim is not to point and laugh at its many failings to produce a meaningful user case. Rather, it's to think a little more deeply about why anyone would hang their hopes of a better world on cryptocurrency and its attendant technology, the blockchain. And it's that mental flip, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Chop Talk, and for six episodes, we're calculating what humans are worth to one another through a deep dive into global financing the messy investment structures that simultaneously promise to improve human agency and routinely repeat the same colonial problems from past eras in the process. De las verdes que circundan a ah, se ven Last year, one of the most important user cases for the collapse of crypto lay with El Salvador, a country in extreme crisis because its dictatorial president decided to make Bitcoin legal currency and hung all his plans for the country's future on developing El Salvador as a crypto-tourism hotspot. As I noted in an article for Only Sky, Naib Bukele has arrested thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in a stated effort to combat a wretched gang violence situation that the U.S. had exacerbated when it offloaded MS-13 gang members to Central America. To offset the clear brutality of these sweeping arrests though, Bukele had also fashioned himself as a cool crypto bro, a millionaire who promised that crypto would make family support transfers from abroad, otherwise known as remittances, as discussed in episode 2, far easier to pull off. He's since lost over 60 million, but kept doubling down as of the end of 2022 by buying more bitcoin with the country's reserves in the hope of the market eventually recovering. He has few other options at this point though, at least until he's ready to give up on that dream entirely. In episode 3 on the IMF, I also noted that El Salvador, which currently holds debts equivalent to its GDP, had put itself into a position where international banks would not, could not, offer any loan arrangement to his hurting country not until Bitcoin was off the books, so that the IMF could assuage its own investors forking over their money to try to help El Salvador stabilize its economy. Bukele is not there yet though, and last year he insisted that he would simply find other financial partnerships in the region to help with his debt load. Here he has a bit of power too, if only because Central American and South American countries understand that it's in everyone's best interest if El Salvador does not become an entirely failed state the social disarray of such a collapse would necessarily have negative impacts on all surrounding and integrated nations too. So, for now, El Salvador is staying afloat, barely, on its dictator's self-aggrandizing dreams of cryptocurrency one day becoming the next big thing and affirming his wild, ambitious ventures in the world's eyes. Meanwhile, if you listen to crypto podcasters and read articles by related influencers, which I have, in droves, as you can see in the episode notes if interested, though I won't be promoting any of their names explicitly here, a striking throughline emerges in the people who, like Bukele, talk about crypto as a path to global uplift, a solution to our poverty crisis, especially in the two-thirds world. In many cases, those speakers are absolutely correct in their criticism of mainstream banking practices, and they rightly highlight the many problems with global finance that we've been discussing throughout the six-part series. They recognize the fact that national banks don't have a duty to serve all the financial needs of state's citizens, and as such, focus on the clients that will bring them the most profit. They recognize that correspondent banks are increasingly conservative about their business relationships in the world because they're not keen on risking being penalized for illicit banking practices, which only further ices out plenty of honest actors who simply want to send money safely to family overseas. And they recognize international players like the World Bank and the IMF as organizations with very specific economic visions that prioritize neoliberal enterprise over the pursuit of fuller, direct democracy, large and small scale alike. It's actually often heartbreaking to listen to some of the talks that these crypto bros give, because I agree with them on so much of their analysis of the problems with the mainstream banking systems, the corporate systems driving our world. The problem is that their leap to a solution is a huge stretch. Crypto, they say, will fix all of this. Crypto, they claim, will allow individuals to reclaim direct financial relationships all across the world without oppressive regulation and in a way that will guarantee the very wealth transfers that all our lofty uplift projects, like the microfinancing I discussed in episode 4, could not. And yes. If blockchain technologies were extremely taxing on the environment because of their ever-growing energy demands, well, so be it. A small cost to pay for the uplift of the world's poorest, right? And besides, climate change was caused by big corporations in the first world anyway, why shouldn't they be the ones to fix it? Why should we go around picking on the poor and the underserved, asking them to hold off on improving their personal lives until a more ethical technology comes around to help them build better? And also, yes, without oppressive regulation, cryptocurrency could very easily, and indeed already has, become an excellent resource for criminal enterprise. Yes, it could and does already make it more difficult to source and push back on human trafficking, child sex rings, and other brutal labors by gangs and cartels. Which is not to say that crypto is actually anonymous, that's another part of the whole hype around blockchain that's been increasingly unraveling in the past few years. Not only are you traceable at any point of onloading or offloading crypto to another currency, but there's actually a whole black market industry that's arisen around the fact that one's digital wallet can be traced and frozen. Government agencies generally use this feature when they suspect a user has been involved in criminal activities, but the same tools are available to clever cookies online, and so some nefarious actors will go around freezing a user's digital wallet, blocking them from selling their tokens so that the mysterious hacker can inflate the price and gain the market at leisure. In other words, very quickly, this grand, lofty marketplace of a superior currency has become yet another den of thieves for many. Like any currency too, it's only valuable so long as people think that it has value. It benefits from more people pouring money and hope into the system without generating profit unto itself. And for this reason, many people who have poured their life savings into this hot new venture have lost everything during recent extremes in market volatility. Nevertheless. Plenty of mainstream financial actors have also picked up on the lofty promise of crypto, as extolled by some of the aforementioned evangelists to the recent industry. Not wanting to be left behind if crypto does become something major, plenty of financial analysts have considered and even developed products to try to make cryptocurrency more stable, including the splendidly redundant stablecoin a cryptocurrency that has its value tied to the value of another currency or financial instrument. Think of it like having a US dollar, a stablecoin dollar, and a regular high volatility crypto coin. The idea is that this intermediate product, the stablecoin, would have a one-to-one exchange rate with the US dollar, or equivalent asset, which is best maintained by the stablecoin exchange holding a reserve of regular fiat currency, or some equivalent security. But ML, you might ask, why make a new product that is exactly equivalent to a pre existing product? Why not just use the US dollar? Especially if stablecoins are still at risk of collapse, as we saw last year when the stablecoin Terra UST, which did not have a reserve of fiat currency or similar securities and instead relied on a complex algorithmic operation to try to stay aligned with their benchmark currency tanked? It's a great question, and it's one that regulators have been answering by pushing for all stablecoins to keep 100% reserves on hand to create a perfect one-to-one relationship between their stated price and the state of their assets. It's tempting to suggest that legislators are simply trying to tolerate The cryptocurrency trend out of existence by increasingly requiring regulations that make crypto perform more like fiat currencies like the US dollar. But as I noted in episode 3 on the IMF, not all actors, even within mainstream finance, are intentionally advancing systems they know will only cause more worldly hardship. Many economists and related financial analysts also recognize the current problems in our national banking industry as in our correspondent banks, and among our underserved, unbanked populations the world over. Many of them also recognize the emergent inefficiencies and adverse outcomes of even well-intentioned investment and development programs that give business far too much power over government and its citizens in lower-income countries. And that's where something fascinating is afoot, In mainstream finance's reluctance to throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to the mess of exploitative scams and ventures associated with cryptocurrency and its exchanges in the last few years. Yes, by and large, there are no solid use cases for crypto that make it a superior unit of exchange in the long run. And yes, by and large, it is still extremely foolhardy to do as Bukele did and pin the future of a whole nation to the rise and fall of a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. And most definitely yes, the current technology underpinning the wasteful, excessive and redundant financial gamble is doing added harm to our already climate change shifted world. But at its heart, there is a kernel of a good idea in crypto. The idea of an individualized token a way of registering an exchange on a peer-to-peer level that bypasses this whole corporate mess, this hierarchy of business communications both nationally and internationally that has made it so very difficult for one human being in one part of the world to engage directly in trade with one human being in another part of the world. Nation-states, as I developed in the first series of Season 2, are both arbitrary and abstract concepts and also little different in practice from the corporate enterprises that they sanction. These are all elaborate structural designs that estrange us from one another and reduce our possibilities as human beings to the possibilities given to us by the distinct state apparatuses into which we were born. But what if we could develop a system that emancipates us as much as the most sincerely ambitious of crypto advocates imagines? What if we could find a low-cost, low-environmentally impactful way to leverage digital technologies to create a more truly global-local democratic platform? I've talked to a few software engineers about this problem, so please don't let me get anyone's hopes up. This is a huge nut to crack, and the work that would be involved in setting up such a system, if it could even be managed without the current environmental draw from blockchain processes, would take years to come about. But after all the suffering that we've already endured thanks to crypto scams and their worst actors, the manipulative and even tyrannical crypto bros who have tricked far too many people into burning through their life savings on a pipe dream, wouldn't it be nice if even one small tendril of a good idea could survive the current dumpster fire of fintech? and related industry buzzwords for the state of our financial systems and take root in the form of systems that could actually improve our world. We'll close off in episode six with just such a speculative exercise. Until then, be careful what you put in any of your wallets because who knows how long any of it will sustain its value there. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk with ML Clark. Maurizio Ferraz is my one man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo, and all further credits for cited and referenced content can be found in attached episode notes. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon. You can also follow my work at Better Worlds Theory. A weekly newsletter at mlclark.substack.com. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Be well, be kind, and seek justice where you can.